Good evening, my fellow Americans. First, I should like to express my gratitude to the radio and television networks for the opportunities they have given me over the years to bring reports and messages to our nation. My special thanks go to them for the opportunity of addressing you this evening. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could with time, and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. 
in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizen can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 33, Missing the Mark. January 17, 1961, Dwight D. Eisenhower, in one of the most famous speeches in U.S. presidential history, warned us of the dangers of the military-industrial complex, portions of which are excerpted in this week's opening. Sadly, we don't have time here for the entire speech, which is about 15 minutes but I highly recommend you doing a search on the internet and listening to the entire speech. Eisenhower wasn't some liberal dove who didn't like the military. He was the Supreme Commander Allied Expeditionary Force. That is, he was the top general in charge of all Allied troops in Europe in World War II. That wasn't enough. He served as president for two terms and oversaw the military-industrial complex during the early years of the Cold War and what he saw scared him. It scared him, one of the greatest generals the U.S. has known, and a generally well-respected president, not to mention a very staunch conservative, enough to use his farewell address as president to warn his national audience. But it hasn't scared us. Here we are, 60 years later, and we still haven't listened to him. So it scared Eisenhower. Why hasn't it scared us? Let's start with what the military-industrial complex is. There's no official organization called the military-industrial complex. The term refers to the triangular, three-sided relationship that exists between military leaders, government policymakers, including legislatures and bureaucrats, and private military contractors and their lobbyists. What Eisenhower noticed when he was president was the change in the military decision-making process. When he was in the military during World War II, both military procurement, decisions about how much of which armaments to manufacture, and decisions on what new technology and weapons should be developed, were pulled by the needs of the military on the battlefield. It was the needs of the military that determined the military budget. What to do? We weren't at war anymore. There wasn't the tremendous pull from the battlefield for defense spending. In a rational world, defense spending would have dropped down to something akin to pre-World War II levels. But that's not necessarily how economics and human psychology always works in a capitalist democracy. So let's look at the historical drivers that were the dominant drivers at the time. Driver 1, a defense industry that needs high continued levels of defense spending in order to make significant profits. It's an unfortunate reality of our form of capitalist democracy that large corporations like defense contractors 
have an outsized voice in how policy is formulated at the highest levels of government. I think the framers of our Constitution thought that each voter would vote for their representatives in Congress, and that it would be in that congressperson's self-interest to do what's in the best interest of their constituents at home that would eventually become necessary for running for office. At the time of our initial Constitutional Convention, the framers didn't foresee what would eventually become an overwhelming need for the vast amounts of money that would eventually become necessary for running for office. According to Maplight, a nonprofit organization that tracks money in politics, members of the House of Representatives had an average of a little shy of $1.7 million in campaign contributions, or over $2,300 per day there in office. Senators averaged about six times this much. Congressional races didn't cost quite as much in the World War II era, but the financing of congressional races looked far more like it does today than it did in the 1700s when our Constitution was being drafted. Senators and representatives needed money to run their re-election campaigns. Back then, there were fewer restrictions on corporations contributing to political campaigns. If members of Congress would just vote for increased defense budgets, the defense contractors in their district could help them in their re-election campaigns and make getting re-elected easier. The congressperson just needed to convince his or her constituents that extravagant defense spending was needed. That gets us to driver number two. The U.S. had been through the bloodiest war in history and had lost over 400,000 American lives in the process. This had affected virtually every American, from family members in the service, to women leaving their homes to work for the first time, to taxes, to war bonds that limited how much each household could consume, down to limiting how much meat they could feed their families. By the end of World War II, Americans were highly attuned to the threat from militarized groups. When they started hearing about the threat from communist Russia, a threat they had already been taught to fear, they had been preconditioned and were ready to fear the Red Menace. Which leads to driver number three. There is a significant amount of labor unrest and union organizing during the 1930s. With this came small, local communist cells who tried to organize and support labor causes. Conservatives spent a considerable amount of time and effort fighting and demonizing these communist groups and painting them, with considerable success, as anti-American. Which gets us to driver number four. In Stalin, the leaders of the military-industrial complex had an obliging antagonist who was willing to be the evil dictator threatening the peace and safety of the American way of life. Okay, he posed no threat whatsoever to America, but he was a very paranoid leader and had formed a good relationship with FDR, America's wartime president. We don't know that this is the case, but there were definitely indications he would have worked with an American president who would have been willing to accept him as part of the community of nations. What we know is that when Mao Zedong was treated as a communist dictator and a threat to the U.S., he treated us in kind as an antagonist nation. When Nixon reached out to Mao to open diplomatic relations with China, China responded in kind, opening diplomatic relations with us 
and began a relationship that led to the open relationship we have with China today. We didn't treat Stalin like that, however. With Truman's blustery, bullying, distrustful personality, we treated Stalin like the enemy in the Cold War that he became. The countries in Eastern Europe that were within the Soviet Union's sphere of influence didn't start out after World War II to be Cold War enemy communist states. But the more adversarially we treated Stalin, the more isolated we made him. In turn, the more adversarially he treated us, and the more repressive he became at home. In short, if the military-industrial complex were to continue to expand, we needed an enemy. We don't know where our relationship with the USSR would have ended up if we had treated them as the ally they were in World War II, but the indications are that they would have wanted to be included as an ally. We do know that when we treated them as an enemy in the Cold War, they became our enemy, giving the military-industrial complex the antagonist needed to justify large and ever-increasing military budgets. There became other drivers. As defense contractors became ever larger, they opened major manufacturing plants to more and more states, everything from the $2 billion B-2 bombers to rifles to ready-to-eat meals so that now representatives and senators from almost every state rely on the defense industry for their campaign support and there are constituents in all those states who depend on continued high defense budgets for their jobs. Then, there's the story that the U.S. must be the world's policeman, and that if we don't, the balance of power will be upset and communist or totalitarian states or whatever will take over. At the end of the Second World War, the U.S., alone in the world, had the capability of producing nuclear bombs. Now an entire city could be wiped out by a single bomb the Soviet Union would develop the capability of building nuclear weapons by 1949. Now we lived in a different world. Fascism had been defeated in World War II. Yet we had been conditioned since the first Homo sapien tribes, some 200,000 years ago, call it 8,000 generations, to fear outgroups. The next war was not likely to be against fascism. No problem. We already had another outgroup to fear. It was one of our two main allies in World War II. The Soviet Union didn't think like us. We had built our system and way of life based on democracy and the freedoms we enjoy as Americans. These weren't the values of the Soviets. Our president during World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, worked closely with Joseph Stalin over the course of the war and developed a personal relationship with him. He even gave Stalin, the man we know as one of the most brutal dictators of modern times, a nickname. FDR called him Uncle Joe. This would all change after the war was over. FDR died on April 12, 1945. After seeing the country through the Great Depression and guiding it through the deadliest war in history, he wouldn't live to see the end of the war that he did so much to assure victory for the Allies. He died one month before the end of the war in Europe, and four months before the end of the war with Japan. His vice president, Harry Truman, replaced him as president. 
FDR was a tactful, intelligent man who knew the importance of diplomacy. Truman had little, if any, tact, and I doubt if anyone would describe him as diplomatic. As far back as 1941, he had said that if Germany were winning the war, we should help Russia, and if Russia were winning the war, we should help Germany, so that the two combatants would kill as many of each other as possible. Truman was called a bungling, if well-meaning, amateur. He would listen to anti-Soviet hawks. In an environment of some of the smartest people of America, Truman, who never graduated from college, did seem like an amateur. Lieutenant General Leslie Groves, who directed the Manhattan Project, described Truman as a little boy on a toboggan. But he was an amateur with a job that made him the most powerful person in the world. Truman would demonstrate what George W. Bush would also show us a half a century later. When you have a president of moderate intelligence, surrounded by advisors with vastly greater intellectual horsepower, the country isn't run by the vision of the president so much as by the advisors that grab the president's ear. In both instances, these were extreme right-wing hawks. In Truman's case, this led us to vilifying the Soviet Union. In the younger Bush's case, it meant an unnecessary war with Iraq. Truman had been a weak child with Coke bottle classes who was bullied when he was younger. Now he was the most powerful person in the world. At the end of World War II, there was a devastated Soviet Union who posed no threat to the U.S. at the time and had demonstrated a desire to have diplomatic ties with us. This should have been an opportunity to celebrate peace. Instead, Truman, listening to his far-right advisors, ineptly bullied the Soviet ambassador. Truman was told that when the Russians were approached with generosity and friendship, the Russians respond in kind. But he wasn't temperamentally attuned to follow these advisors. There was never any question about the magnitude of the Soviet sacrifice, over 20 million dead, and the importance of Russia keeping massive amounts of Nazi soldiers engaged on the Eastern Front while the Western Allies advanced on Berlin from the West. But Truman, ignoring this, viewed Stalin as a ruthless dictator. Stalin, who had a mile-wide paranoid streak, responded in kind. On three occasions, Truman said that he knew the bomb could end life on the planet, yet he chose a path of escalation rather than one of diplomacy and led us directly into the Cold War. In Russia in World War II, 20 million lost their lives and much of their industrial land was turned into wasteland. But Truman simply portrayed Stalin as a brutal dictator. Stalin had wanted to continue good relations with the U.S. Truman lost the chance we had to continue normalized diplomatic relations with Russia and launched us into the Cold War. We remember the communist countries of Eastern Europe as puppet states of the USSR, controlled by the Kremlin. But it didn't start out that way. They were independent states within the sphere of influence of the Soviets. By the end of World War II, we had lost a terrible 400,000 dead from the war. But that was less than 2% of the number the Soviet Union had lost in the fight. 
the war didn't touch American industrial infrastructure. Other than Pearl Harbor, virtually none of the war had occurred on U.S. soil. World War II had truly brought us out of the Depression. Production of war material had brought unemployment from the 10% it was before the war to under 2%, its lowest level in the 20th century. This was in stark contrast to much of the rest of the world, where their industrial infrastructure had been bombed, shelled, and devastated by the war. Exports were booming, and industrial production was growing by an amazing 15% annually. The U.S. was clearly the winner of the war. We had two-thirds of the world's gold reserves and three-quarters of its invested capital. In a world devastated by war, we were producing a full 50% of the world's goods and services. There is no country on earth that posed a threat to the U.S. Mankind goes through political fads, just as different generations go through different fads. The rock and roll, long hair, and 501 jeans of my youth made way to disco and leisure suits of our younger brothers and sisters, who made way for mullets, shoulder pads, and Walkmen, which, in the 90s, morphed to My Little Ponies, Rainbow Socks, and the Macarena. Prefer the early 2000s? How about frosted lip gloss, pants with things like Juicy written on the butt, and boy bands? The Middle Ages went through feudalism, absolutist monarchies, and began experimenting with constitutional monarchies. After what we've termed the Second Axis and the Great Enlightenment thinkers, came the rise of the enlightened monarchs of the 18th and 19th century, who were still absolutist monarchs, but governed more in accord with Enlightenment philosophies and, at least in theory, governed with their subjects' best interests in mind. With the Industrial Revolution and the change to mass communication, a vastly expanded middle class, and literacy and an educated populace, countries were experimenting with different political systems. Fascism was a fad countries experimented with in the mid-20th century. Germany, Italy, and Japan were the major fascist countries. Fascist countries were characterized by far-right dictators, ultra-nationalism, forcible suppression of opposition, and firm regimentation of the economy and society. It was a fad that didn't last long. The fascist countries were too expansionist and all picked fights with other countries they couldn't win. The fascist countries were defeated and, with U.S. aid and reconstruction plans, were now democracies. The USSR was communist, and China would become communist in 1949. But both were far too devastated by the ravages of World War II to be a threat to the U.S. This was it. This was the moment history had been waiting for since the first Homo sapien tribe split off into separate warring tribes 200,000 or more years ago. After this happened, and hunter-gatherer bands expanded to inhabit every continent, there was a profusion of warring groups. Apex predators, like the North American wolves and African lions, have psychologies in which they form familial groups or packs establish territories, and exclude non-PAC members from their territories. If someone of their species enters their territory, they will run them off. If the intruders don't go willingly, 
there's going to be a fight, and, if necessary, someone's going to die. Prague or cultural hunter-gatherers did the same things. They established their territories, were apex predators, and excluded other familial units. We noted in episode 19 that the North American cougar had expanded to the point where every ecological niche, at least in the state of Oregon, that's capable of sustaining a cougar is occupied by a cougar. This pretty much happened with the post-Adam and Eve diaspora. Eventually, all land capable of sustaining humans was claimed by some tribe. There is little exception to this. Then came agriculture. The familial-based hunter-gatherer tribal units were forced out by cities and cities to city-states with their far superior numbers and military technology. But eventually, pretty much all of the land suitable for agriculture was forcefully taken from indigenous hunter-gatherers and city-states were established. Still, we weren't done. Violent conflict without groups was ingrained in our society just as it is in a pride of lions. The difference is we have language to justify our warfare. We need living room. They're occupying land that historically belongs to us. They have weapons of mass destruction. The point is that our culture of warring with each other started 200,000 years or more ago. As humanity spread throughout the globe, we divided into even more warring groups, to the point where, somewhere around 10,000 years ago, there were thousands upon thousands of warring groups throughout the globe. Then, with the advent of agriculture, things started going the other way. Instead of there being a profusion of more and more warring groups, settled cities, then city-states, started fighting. The wars were nastier and bloodier. City-states turned into kingdoms, and kingdoms into nations. Military technology got deadlier and deadlier, but our inclination for reactive aggression went unchecked until, with one war, World War II, we would kill 75 million people. Then it happened. There was a winner in humanity's millennia-old battle for supremacy. In every tribe that's ever existed in human history, in every city, city-state, kingdom, or country up to that point, there was some, either more or less, danger that your social grouping would be attacked by a rival group of humans and conquered. In some senses, things got better. We, or at least the more civilized nations, no longer captured our enemies, carried them away, and enslaved them. As both the Germans and Japanese demonstrated, however, not all countries were that civilized. Civilized or not, our war technology was so advanced that by World War II, we were killing each other by the millions. At any rate, now, for the first time in the history of humanity, the United States was the first country to emerge untouchable. There is no country, nor even a conceivable alliance of countries, that was strong enough to attack the U.S. And this was the U.S. We had treated all our prisoners according to the Geneva Convention. We didn't torture. Well, there were the firebombings and atomic bombings, but other than that, we were pretty civil about the hundreds of thousands of enemies we killed. 
and we rebuilt the enemies who attacked us. Another historical first. We stood alone then. No one could touch us. Economically, we were far superior to any other nations. And we were helping all the war-ravaged countries of Europe and Asia. This was the turning point that history had been waiting for for 200,000 years. All we needed was a leader to take charge and lead us away from the reactive aggression mire we'd been trapped in since the dawn of humanity. Oh yeah, our leader. Harry S. Truman was the only president since the turn of the 20th century who was not a college graduate. He'd been bullied when he was a boy. Now he was president, and it was his turn to make up for it. He was fond of treating foreign diplomats rude and uncivilly, leaving them shaking their heads and saying things like, I've never been treated like that, and then telling his aides, I guess I put him in his place. Truman never saw the subtleties in international affairs a man like FDR, so far his intellectual superior could. Joseph Stalin was a bad man, even an evil man, but the U.S. was stuck with him as the leader of the Soviet Union. FDR could see that Stalin didn't have the expansionist desires other Soviet leaders like Leon Trotsky had, and Stalin desperately wanted the acceptance of the United States. FDR was a true diplomat and could disarm Stalin by calling him Uncle Joe. What would have happened if we had a man of vision, intelligence, and diplomacy as the president at the end of World War II? One who could have worked with Stalin and made some kind of nuclear weapons treaty before the nuclear arms race got out of hand, similar to the agreements we made to ban mustard gas, which was a far less dangerous weapon of mass destruction? We'll never know. We got Truman. Truman saw life in terms of black and white, good and bad. He was a concrete thinker of average intelligence and didn't have the intellectual ability to capitalize on the possibilities of this historical opportunity, or even the abilities to see the possibilities that this moment in history offered. Winston Churchill had been the man of the hour in England. He was the wartime prime minister they needed. He thought strategically, was fearless, and gave the English people the hope and encouragement they needed when things looked their bleakest but he was a man who was meant for war. The British loved him, but they didn't see him as the one to lead them into peace. They voted for change. Yet Churchill did not go quietly into the night. Like Truman, he saw the world as composed of the forces of good and evil. In 1946, now as a private citizen, he made his now famous Iron Curtain speech. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere, and all are subject in one form or another not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from Moscow. Forgive my lack of a Churchillian accent. It was no coincidence that Churchill came to the U.S. to make this speech, and no coincidence that he made it in Truman's home state, Missouri. Things devolved quickly from there. 
Truman threatened war with the Soviet Union over problems in the Middle East. The U.S. was the motivating force behind the cutoff of reparation payments from West Germany to the Soviet Union. Then we set off an atomic bomb in the Marshall Islands. But the timing was purposeful. It served as a potent reminder to the Soviets that we had the bomb and they didn't. Over and over again in human history, it's been shown that diplomacy works, and it works very well, especially when overtures are made from a stronger nation to a weaker one. This was so clearly shown with Germany and Japan following the war. The nations that had been our arch enemies, with positive diplomacy and assistance in rebuilding, became among our closest allies. And it was one of our closest allies in World War II that Truman was able to turn into our Cold War enemy. This gets us into the real reason for rebuilding Germany and Japan. The Marshall Plan wasn't passed by Congress until 1948, three years after the end of World War II. What happened during these three years? In the Potsdam Conference that took place after the end of World War II in Europe and shortly before the end of the war in the Pacific, gone was the diplomacy of FDR. With the dull anti-communist Truman, we had a leader that distrusted Stalin. Churchill had also been voted out by this time, and the new English prime minister also distrusted the Soviets. Truman was extremely harsh towards Stalin throughout the conference. Some agreements were made at the conference, but the main effect of the conference was to destroy the amicable relationship between the U.S. and the USSR that FDR had been able to create throughout the war. Truman believed that it was the Soviet Union's intent to spread its ideology and influence throughout the globe. In fact, after Vladimir Lenin's death in 1924, there had been a struggle between Stalin and Leon Trotsky. The main difference between the two was that Trotsky wanted to focus on the USSR's efforts on spreading international communism, and Stalin was not interested in international expansion but wanted to focus on rebuilding Russia from within. In an address to Congress on March 12, 1947, Truman announced what has become known as the Truman Doctrine. That is, essentially, that it would be the policy of the U.S. to counter any geopolitical spread of the Soviets. According to some sources, Truman had even threatened to use nuclear war against the nuclear weaponless Soviet Union in order to get what he wanted. By 1948, then, there was a strongly adversarial relationship between Truman and Stalin. Truman's anti-Soviet rhetoric was popularly accepted, and there was a general feeling that the USSR posed the next great danger to the U.S. The U.S. didn't want to face both communist Russia and the fascist states of Germany and Japan in the coming years, or even worse, allow communism to spread to these former fascist states. So it decided to rebuild both Germany and Japan, turning what had been bitter enemies into America's allies. With Germany and Japan as allies then, we would have buffer states, both on the USSR's eastern and western flanks. And so the Cold War raged on. Senator Joseph McCarthy initiated his investigations into the existence of great numbers of imagined internal communists that were supposedly threatening not only our government, but also the American way of life. There's the Bay of Pigs fiasco 
in which CIA-supported Cuban rebels landed on the shores of Cuban beaches and were immediately and soundly crushed by Fidel Castro's troops. In the early 1950s and 60s, it was common knowledge that there was a large, quote, missile gap in which the Soviet Union's intercontinental ballistic missiles vastly outnumbered our own. Throughout the Eisenhower years, vast amounts of money was spent in building more and more nuclear warheads and ICBMs in hopes of closing this missile gap. Our efforts were in vain, however. All Americans knew that the missile gap continued to exist. When President Kennedy took office, he instructed his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, to determine how big the missile gap really was. He was surprised to find out that far from being behind the Soviets in nuclear weapons and missile construction, we were far ahead. The U.S. had ten times the number of nuclear weapons the Soviets did, and we had constructed 45 intercontinental ballistic missiles to the Soviets' four. We ended in the nuclear standoff with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, in the only time our military has gone to DEFCON 2, came very close to nuclear war. In America, fear of the Russians similarly went from a simmering constant fear to its own version of DEFCON 2. This exaggerated fear would blow up as the French lost a heretofore insignificant colony in Indochina. The post-World War II era was the decolonization era. Virtually all colonial powers had lost all of their colonies by this point. But as the French were losing Vietnam, the arguments came rolling in. If we lose Vietnam to communism, all of Southeast Asia will fall to communism. Then where will it go? We would spend the next decade until 1975 losing almost 60,000 young American lives in Vietnam. Okay, so after World War II, we poured massive amounts of money into our erstwhile enemies and made them our friends, while we bullied and antagonized our main World War II ally and made it our Cold War enemy. This was the real reason behind the Marshall Plan and the Japanese Reconstruction. We felt that if we could create positive, friendly diplomatic relations with Germany and Japan, we'd have buffer states between the U.S., and what we saw as our new enemy, the Soviet Union. Why did we think this? First, there's the fact that we have to recognize that there's no guarantee that Stalin, the man who instigated a famine that killed millions from the Ukraine to Kazakhstan, and would go on to oversee the killing and imprisonment of millions of his own citizens in the Soviet Gulag, would have accepted a post-war world order in which the U.S. and Soviets would have worked amicably together. But there are indications that they would have. The USSR was not focused on exporting communism at the time and had overwhelming problems at home in their war-ravaged country and had established good diplomatic relations with us during the war. They didn't need to fight an expensive Cold War. 
The point is, we'll never know if the diplomatic route would have worked with Soviets because it was never tried. A man of greater intelligence and vision than Harry Truman would have tried to create cordial relations with the USSR. Since the dawning of Homo sapiens, we had separated ourselves into warring groups and fought each other in an attempt to become the Alpha Group, the group that no other group could possibly overcome. And finally, after 200,000 years of these warring groups, America won. We were at the top. No one could touch us. This was the opportunity we had to create the New World Order. It would be a short window and would last only until the Soviet Union got the bomb. We knew that rebuilding states could change enemies into allies. We did it with Germany and Japan. Nixon would open diplomatic relations with China and show that we could peacefully coexist with a large communist nation. Yet we treated the USSR adversarially. I've been hard on Truman. I think history's ultimate judgment will be harsh on him as well. But honestly, most of our potential leaders at the time would have ended up with something similar. Eisenhower had far more intellectual horsepower and could see the subtlety in diplomatic relations that Truman couldn't. But he couldn't pull us out of the Cold War quagmire that Truman had got us into. The problem? After 8,000 generations of seeing other Homo sapien groupings as threatening, after 200,000 years of being conditioned to approach outgroups with reactive aggression, psychologically, Americans in leadership positions weren't ready to believe that we could live in a world that didn't consist of warring groups. Sadly, this didn't have to be the case. The world, after World War II, had a chance for a new world order. A chance that we would miss. FDR's vice president before Truman, Henry Wallace, was a man that would have been able to see the opportunity that this new world presented. If he had been vice president at the time of FDR's death, it's possible that we would be living in a very different world today. But Truman was our leader. And, like 8,000 generations of tribal leaders before him, he was looking for the next great danger and found it in the Russians. The Soviet Union exploded its first nuclear bomb in 1949, and the nuclear race was on. It was full speed into the Cold War. We had lost our window of opportunity. You get a break from reading this week. Instead, I'm recommending Oliver Stone's documentary series, The Untold History of the United States. This is a different take on Cold War history. I can't agree with all of it, but it's important to look at history from all sides. Oliver Stone and his collaborator, historian Peter Kuznick, offer their take on this important era of U.S. history. Much of it not yet in the popular repertoire. Enjoy. See you next week.